So it seems that from our youth, we are taught two important things about our conduct. The first, the first thing that we're often taught is to always be original and not follow the crowd, right? Um, but then at the same time, we are also taught to follow and obey and submit parents, our teachers, and our elders. And it seems like our culture is a bit confused, right, on when to be unique and set apart and stand up for themselves, or when to humbly submit and follow directions. Um, our culture has found a way to confuse the two. Many young people mix the two in attempt to be original by not following the rules. You see how they mix that up? And rebel against regulations, while at the same time act in ways of submission to their personal influences and views of their favorite pop star that they follow on TV, things like that. And it's ironic that in our culture of things like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram following, we still have trouble following authority. And I sometimes think that it is embedded in our culture to always be suspicious towards any kind of authority. When we're at work, the boss is often seen as the enemy of the employees, right? I know that's not the case for you. You guys see your boss with pure eyes. Uh, but for many, this is the case. For, for children in school, the teacher may seem like they have made it their own personal goal in life to fail them. And that F on the test, that F on the test is not your fault. It's uh, because the teacher just doesn't like you. And at times we think this way. I know I did when I was younger. Um, as Americans, uh, we can trace rebellious roots back to even like the American Revolution and beyond that, right? Uh, even throughout our history, there's been culture-shaping moments that has shaped our country for good, but were done by standing against laws and against authority. So you see where the confusion is? Even we, as evangelical Christians, are called Protestants, right? And in that title, Protestant, we see the word protest, right? Protestant. We are Protestant because we are we're a part of the church that denies the so-called universal authority of the Pope. While affirming Reformation principles of justification by faith alone, the priesthood of all believers, and the primacy of the Bible as the only source of revealed truth from God. In other words, we're not Roman Catholic. We broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. But again, that's just another example of our tendency to rebel, right? This can often be confusing to the common Christian because throughout the New Testament, we see in, in a bunch of places that we're committed to submit. We see in the Bible that wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives in submission to Christ. Christ himself, even though he was equal to God the Father, did not count it a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing uh, taking the form of a servant. He was obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So whenever you hear the word submission, uh, before you see it as a bad word, think about Jesus. Jesus being the king of kings, right, displayed the greatest example of submission. So keep that, keep that word of submission in mind. With that, I want to talk further about the topic of submission but more specifically, I want to talk about it in the context of the local church, uh, specifically towards our submission to our pastors. 
The Bible shows us that every member of the church must be a humble follower. God, the Holy Spirit, has gifted the church with shepherds that not only feed the flock, but watch and care for their souls. And the Bible commands his church to recognize this and submit to those who he has appointed in our lives as, as pastors. So again, we as, church, we as a church play a vital role in the effectiveness of the pastor's shepherding in our lives based on how we respond to their God-given position. A healthy church member, a healthy church member is a humble follower and submits to them uh, with humility. So with that said, I'm going to discuss the topic by breaking it down into three points. The first point I want to talk about, and you'll see it on your handout, is submission. So I'm actually just going to talk about submission in general. Because I think when we hear the word submission, it's, it's like a bad word. Uh, and I, I want to break a few misconceptions about that. So that's point number one. Point number two is our attitude towards leadership. How is our attitude towards leadership and what does the Bible say about that? And then point number three, our actions towards leadership. What we do for the pastors, what we do for the leaders, um, according to what the scripture commands us to do for our pastors. So point number one, submission. Submission is a tough concept to swallow sometimes. It seems weak and unfair. And at times our pride makes us look around and think, who in the world is worthy of my submission? What kind of an arrogant, self-centered person would assume authority over me and demand my submission? But when we look in the Bible, we see that headship has always been around since the beginning of creation. Submission and headship, someone over someone else. We see this in Genesis 1:26, how Adam was created as a ruler over creation. So that's an example of headship. Let's look at that. Genesis 1:26. Would someone read that? Thank you, Jessica. So Adam was given a charge, not only to have dominion over all creation, but to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue means to bring it under control, to bring creation under control. In other words, Adam was to act as a king and bring all things under submission to him as he was to bring it all in submission to the Lord. Beginning first with the garden where he was appointed to be at and to serve at. And then ultimately expanding this rule to the ends of the earth. So again... He is to be the king. He is to put everything under submission to himself and then to submit all things that are in submission to him to submission to God. Um, And this was his job and he was to do it in the garden and outside of the garden. He was to expand it. Now, we move forward to a command from God to Adam saying, and you guys might remember this, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is what God said to Adam. Now the tree in Eden seems to have been a symbol where judgment was to be carried out. 
I, I think about the symbol that we often see in courthouses or in courtrooms of like Lady Justice holding the scale. That's sort of a symbol of the knowledge of good and evil. Likewise, the tree seems to also symbolize judgment. Discerning between good and evil is a Hebrew expression that refers to kings being able to carry out justice. And I say that only to show that this place, this tree, um, this place where Adam should have gone to discern between good and evil and where he should have carried out justice and judgment against a serpent um, as, as the serpent entered the garden, uh, this should have taken place there. But many of you may already know what ended up happening, right? Um, look at Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Someone read that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Hmm. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Thank you. You saw that uh, blame shift there? <laughs> I crack up every time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he just threw his wife under the bus. Yeah. Uh, we, we see here that Adam essentially failed in his kingship by disregarding the creation mandate. Remember that Adam was created in the image of God. And what was commanded from him was to reflect God's rule throughout the earth. Yet Adam remained passive at the tree of knowledge of good and evil when he let a creature, a mere animal, deceive his spouse first and then his spouse convincing Adam to eat of the tree that God clearly said not to eat of. Now with that said, I hope you are able to see that there is a major, major submission issue within the created order here. Think about the order of headship that was established by God in the beginning. God being the supreme ruler of all, again, he's on the top of the food chain there, then creates man in his image to rule over all creation, and then out of man creates woman as his helpmate 
And finally, at the bottom, animals and other creatures. But in Genesis 3, the fall happens because of the reverse of this created order. In the fall, we see animal gaining rule over Eve as the serpent deceives the woman. Then the woman overcomes the rule of Adam's kingship and then shares the forbidden fruit with him. And worst of all, in my opinion, is the passivity of Adam by allowing this to take place when he was commanded to subdue. Look at the curse that God places on Adam as the male. I want you to look at the curse. Oh, I didn't show you that verse, but okay. Genesis 3, 17. Uh, someone read that. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Mm. Notice what I underlined there. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now before you husbands start thinking... Now, I know not to listen to my wife <laughs> anymore. Uh, no, this verse is simply addressing man's responsibility to rule correctly. Um, Adam was to be the head of his wife and was to lead his wife to obey God's word and not to allow his wife, number one, to be deceived by the lies of the serpent. And also, Adam was not to, to submit to his wife's heresy but to model true godly kingship and correct this heresy instead of submitting to it, okay? That's really the core issue here. Ultimately, Adam's failure is rooted to a failure to submit to the headship of God himself. If, if, if Adam was focused on submitting to God and his rule and his authority, maybe this would have not happened. Um, in fact, all the failures going down the chain of headship are rooted at the ultimate authority over all, which is God himself, and also what God has said, which is his word. So each person in this chain who failed in this test really failed against God. In other words, a failure to submit to God and his appointed headship is actually a rebellion against God and his word. As, uh, um, and this, again, this, this would lead to what we've seen here in the fall. And, and in other ways, this would lead to uh, chaos and disorder rather than order um, when we don't submit to God's appointed leaders. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that God continues to move towards this goal of correct submission even after the fall of creation. We see throughout the Old Testament example, examples of leadership uh, from Moses and also the high priests and the kings in which God raises up in order to lead a people to submit to them as they submit to the will of God. This is the model that God has established in order that his reign would go out to the ends of the world. And we see the same idea throughout the New Testament as well. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. Can someone read that? Thank you. 
So again, this is an example. In this verse, we see the continuation of headship and the headship order. First, we see that Paul himself, acknowledging his his pastoral role, he has called the church at Corinth to imitate him. This might seem arrogant, but notice that he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So in other words, as long as Paul is living in service to Christ, the church were called to imitate his godliness and servanthood to Christ. So we also see in this verse that as a man follows Christ, his wife is also able to follow her husband. Right? So husband following Christ, wife follows the husband, they're all following Christ. So here we see God calling for submission, but he's calling for submission amongst equals. So it, just because one is head, one is... Uh, you know, in submission to the headship, it doesn't mean that one is greater in value, right? He, he did not make man superior. He made a way for man and woman to work together. Genesis tells us that God made man and woman in his image. Both are equal in worth, yet are very distinct in function. One is not lesser than the other, right? We don't look at a woman and say, oh, she's lesser than me, um, or... or uh, in, in leadership in, in church, we don't look at one leader and say, oh, he's better than me. One is not lesser than the other. We can look at Jesus Christ for this example. Again, although Jesus is equal with God the Father, he submitted to him, God the Father, by carrying out the work of salvation. Likewise, although equal to men under God, the wife's submission to her husband serves in such an amazing way. It serves the family Right? Her submission to her husband actually serves the family in a good way, in a unique way. It serves the marriage in a unique way. Um, and this too is done to the glory and the service of God. So understanding your role of submission, um, and again, this is not only for the wives, all of us are called to submit some way or, or another. Um, and that role of submission is not weak. Uh, we see this in Jesus Christ. This is a service to God. Um, So again, this submission between equals ought to be a willful one, both for the benefit of others and as service to God. Likewise, we serve God in these relationships by willingly submitting to others in our church, to our spouses, and even uh, things like the government and, and so on and so forth. Let's look at another verse. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. Can someone read that? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, so we see that word submitting again, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here we see Paul telling the church at Ephesus to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as we submit to Christ, we become more willing to obey his command to submit to others, that is, to give up our own interests for theirs, like Jesus did for us, right? This doesn't mean becoming a doormat for everyone, uh, but rather this is a call to work together for the sake of building up the body in love. Uh, so again, we're, we're all called to submit to each other. And Submission is rarely a problem in a community that has, that has a strong relationship with Christ. 
uh, and where each is concerned for the good of the other, for the edification of the other. Um, and so uh, we see that and we're able to do this when we are strong in Christ, when we submit to Christ himself. If you think about it practically, submission is a key element in the smooth functioning of any business, right? Uh, government, and especially in family. What would a company look like if everyone did what they wanted and no one either submitted to a manager or even to each other? Imagine going to work and no one submitting to each other and no one submitting to the boss. Now, I doubt that after years of university, you finally agree your uh, you finally earn your degree and you finally get to the career that you've always wanted, I doubt that you would act rebellious against, against your manager now that you've finally got the job that you've wanted. If everyone was this way and no one submitted to anyone, things would be very different. Likewise, God ordains submission in certain institutions and certain relationships to prevent this kind of chaos. The same goes for the church. And as the church continues to be built up in love, they grow into the fullness of Christ's likeness through this act of submission. It is important to understand that submission is not total surrender, withdrawal, or apathy. It does not mean inferiority, because God created all people in his image, and all have equal value. Yet submission is mutual. It's a mutual commitment and cooperation for a cause, right? It means to know your place and to live it out to the glory of God. With that said, I want to look at another key verse. Um, there you go. Uh, and this is the key verse, I think, for the whole lesson for today. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Someone read that. There you go. Amen. So, think about the church, your brothers in Christ, how this thing functions. The health of a local church may depend on the member's response to the church, church's leadership. So, how the congregation receives or rejects its leaders has a direct effect on the possibilities of faithful ministry and church health. Does the congregation appreciate and accept sound preaching from our pastor? Sometimes they don't. Will its members trust and follow a leader in difficult or maybe unclear situations? Will the congregation be patient? Or do they rally behind or tear apart the leaders when plans and ideas sometimes fail? These are questions that we ought to ask ourselves. And in the final analysis, church members are the people who generally make or break the local church. Making or breaking the church has a lot to do with the members' attitudes and actions towards its leaders. The Bible has a lot to say regarding church members' attitudes and actions towards their leaders. So let's talk about it. Let's uh, go to point number two. Point number two is our attitude towards leadership. So I want to take a few, min uh, few minutes to talk about attitudes that should categorize healthy church members when it comes to following their leaders. So 
you know, we'll, we'll talk about some attitudes that, that we should see that are good, that should be towards um, our leaders. Point number one, I would say, is honoring the elders. Honoring the elders. When I was younger, <laughs> I thought honoring elders meant honoring those who are older than me. And I still believe we ought to honor those who are older than us, who came before us. But when the scriptures tell us to honor the elders, it's referring to honoring our pastors. One scripture that speaks about honoring our pastors is 1 Timothy 5.17. Someone read that. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, Hmm. especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Thank you. So a question, what does... What does such double honor include? The Apostle Paul brings attention to two things in that verse. Actually, no, in the following verse, uh, this one here, 18 through 19. You'll notice two things uh, that Paul uh, points out. I'm going to read it. It says, uh, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. And then verse 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So look at verse 18, the first one there. We see here that honoring the elders includes caring for their financial and physical needs. So a congregation or a member that honors its leaders provide appropriate and uh, sufficient wages for their leaders especially those who are working full-time in ministry towards the church. You see that in the beginning. A laborer deserves his wages. So while many of us work 40 hours a week, weekends off, a pastor can't stop being a pastor. They have to keep being a pastor all the time. You can't punch out, right? Sermon prep is only one part of the shepherding role, believe me. This is the pastor's whole life. Therefore... We must not abuse these men with a lack of pay, especially since the scriptures say that they are worthy of double honor. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19, Paul explains that honoring our leaders also means, and this is very important, I think this is more practical, um, that honoring our leaders, according to verse 19, means that we are to protect their reputations. We're not to admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if anyone understands this personally, Paul himself understood better than anyone else. Um, he, he understood that ministry is open to criticism, charges, complaints from outside, and you know what, and inside the church as well. So a healthy church member will help to guard the shepherd from unwanted claims and attacks. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for a congregation? This means that when we hear rumors or gossips or backbiting comments regarding our pastors, they should literally, I mean literally die the moment it hits our ears. Especially if they're not a charge on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why? Most of us are adults. We know that once you hear something, uh, people are prone to, to, to say something all the time. That's just, that's just the way people are. And we should, we should cut that off right the moment we hear it in our ears. You want to be a faithful Christian? Start with <clears throat> refusing to give consideration to unedifying tales 
and unedifying things that people might say. Honor the elder's office. A healthy member esteems this office highly and is thankful for it and respects those who serve the Lord's people as elders. Being, being an elder is difficult. And as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we should respect this office and never neglect to honor it. Another, another point uh, regarding our attitudes towards our elders is that we should show open-hearted love to the leaders. What this means is that our honor and our respect that we give to the elders should not be like distant or like the official honor that maybe a soldier gives to a commanding officer or a sailor to a captain, right? Our honor should be expressed with open-hearted love. We see this in scripture that Paul called the Corinthian church to have open hearts to him as one who cared for them spiritually. Let's look at that verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Someone want to read that? I love this verse. <clears throat> it reminds me that there should, be, there should be like a sweet exchange of affection between pastors and their congregation. Even when we speak to each other. As we live, grow, and labor together with our pastors, our hearts are to open increasingly wide towards each other. Healthy church members don't withhold their affections for their pastors, but rather gives it freely and liberally. We see in another verse how Paul pleaded to the Corinthian church for their hearts to be open to him. Now, we should never have to have our pastors plead with us to open our hearts, right? They should receive it from us. Let's, let's read that verse as well. I'll read it. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 3. It says, make room. This is Paul speaking to the church. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one and we have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul had such a compassion for his people and we ought to have the same love towards our pastors. Here's another verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. It says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is coming from Paul. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So a healthy member first, of course, gives his love to the Lord, and then to the minister of the Lord, knowing that this is the will of God. Such a member sees how the faithful pastor will spend himself for the body in love, and he will be ashamed And we should be ashamed to hear the pastor ask us, if I love you more, will you love me less? Our attitude towards our pastor should be one of love all the time. Another point I think is pretty important is uh, we should be teachable before our elders. A teachable spirit is proof of a humble heart and a desire to grow in Christ. 
Without it, we will go nowhere as a church if no one is teachable. If everyone's teachers, then, then we're not going anywhere. But uh, if we're all humble and teachable, then we might move forward. Um, and, and think about the roles of the pastor. If you analyze the primary roles of the pastors, you might be able to boil it down to the role of teaching. Uh, pastors teach by their example, by their serving. They teach by expositing the word of God and preaching to the congregation. They teach in their counseling, in their discipleship. So this is, this is their primary job. Now, I know, that many of, <laughs> I know that many of you might be excellent theologians and, uh, and, and constantly have that urge to teach others. Uh, you know, I know some people that feel that way. I know I've felt that way before. Many of you have been receiving teachers from your favorite celebrity pastors. Maybe you hear sermons from your uh, iPhone or maybe sermons from the sermon audio app. Maybe your father or your uncle or your baby cousin is a professor at Westminster. And this is fine, but the question is, are you able to be patient? And are you able to be humble and sit under the teachers? Have you arrived, like Paul would say, to the point that you're unable to be taught? We should be teachable. If a member or anyone, anyone from the church proves to be unteachable or an unteachable person, what happens to the task of the pastor? It becomes a burden if you're unteachable. And sometimes it becomes undoable since the church member is opposing him at the most essential point of his job to teach them. Let's look at it from the pastor's point of view. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Here you'll see um, instructions given to pastors. Uh, somebody want to read that? And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, <clears throat> patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So this is, this, is, this is from the perspective of the pastor, the instructions that are given to him on how he ought to lead. So first, we see that the pastor's instruction is meant to be gentle, right, kind, and for our good when he instructs us. So we should not take sinful advantage of that God-ordained disposition. Rather, we should accept the kind instruction as a rebuke and a call to repentance. I mean, it's hard enough that the pastor has to be patient. Um, and again, this is, this is commanded to him. Uh, but he has to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We shouldn't take advantage of that. We should, when we see this kind of correction happening to us, we should say, okay, you know, I have to consider what he's saying. If we, are, if we are to be a healthy member, we shouldn't mistake godly kindness, in other words, for weakness in a pastor. But always use that kind of occasion to examine our own hearts for the areas that they might be calling out on us. So if the pastor's telling you, you know, you know this and that, you, you, <clears throat> I think you're not doing this, or I think uh, you might consider this, the Bible says this, um, in other words, if he's rebuking something in you or something about you, trying to correct you, and he's doing it with gentleness, he's doing it patiently, 
um, he's doing it in a kind manner. He's doing it because he's trying to, he's trying to obey the, the scriptures. And this should be a sign to us, okay, he's, he's being real patient with us. Let's, um, let's listen to what he's saying and uh, receive this correction. Uh, secondly, we should recognize how easy it is to oppose the pastor as he instructs us. It's easy to rebel against the pastor. It's easy to tell him off because we know that he's called to be patient and kind. And so we could take advantage of that. We should ask ourselves, am I in any way opposing sound biblical teaching from the pastor? Again, the pastor's very job is to watch over our souls because he knows that he too, him too, will have to give an account to God for this. And it is God the Holy Spirit who distributes the gifts to the church. So we should then trust and accept the leaders and the leadership joyfully as a gift from God for our benefit. So again, this is a call for us to be teachable. Uh, Let's move on to our last point. Our last point is our actions towards leadership. So we spoke about our attitudes. Now let's talk about our actions towards leaders. So going back to the verse that I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Actually, I'll put it up. There you go. Um, We can pull many practical things from this verse um, and find ways to honor our leaders from it. Um, Let me read it. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Uh, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. So notice how the writer of Hebrews says, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. So what he's saying in that verse is that we should be mindful that the person who is watching and feeding our souls um, has to give an account to God. But we should also be mindful um, of their joy that they would be able to do it without groaning, without uh, without it being a burden. Now, think of it in this example. Um, imagine the, a doctor that is performing surgery on you or someone that you love. You want to make sure that they are in their greatest capacity to do this. Uh, don't test them, right? Don't harass them or make them lose their focus because this person has the life of the patient in their hands. We wouldn't do this to a surgeon. Now, spiritually speaking, our leaders are keeping watch over our souls. They are feeding us with the word of God. So we ought to let them do this with joy and not with groaning. This would be no advantage to us. Uh, Funny, funny thought. I'm always surprised by people who approach the pastor right before he's about to go up to the pulpit to preach. (laughs) And as he is focused in his mental prayer and meditation, trying to be led by the Spirit because he's about to deliver God's word to his people for their edification, and all of a sudden, someone rushes to him and tells him that the, the bathroom toilet is clogged or, or that the children's room is in need of someone. Again, he's walking. He's literally walking up the stage, uh, the pulpit, ready to deliver God's word. And I'm always surprised, you know, hey, pastor, uh, you know, the toilet's clogged or, or something's wrong in the back. Again, we, we really need to think you know, be mature in Christ. Be mature as people. Think and be sensitive to this. 
I'm always surprised by people who choose Sunday morning to express a complaint or a problem going on to, to the very pastor who's preaching that morning without thinking, maybe this can wait. In fact, that's what the deacons are for, right? That's what we're here for. We're here for the toilet overflow, okay? We're here for the missing children's teacher. Find one of us. Seriously. Our job is to give room for the elders and pastors to concentrate on prayer and the preaching of God's word. Look for a, a, a deacon. In fact, here's a verse. Uh, yeah, so, someone want to read that? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Hmm. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, you see that? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. To understand the difference there, understand their job and their, their focus. Um, so we see for that reason the office of deacon was created. Likewise, we should, we, in fact, we should all serve to this end. That our pastors would be free to serve the body with joy and with focus and with, uh, with, with gladness. And finally, given all that church leaders must do and have to deal with, there is nothing more important than to pray for them. Even the Apostle Paul understood his own need for the saints to be prayerful and to be faithful in prayer for him. I'll go ahead and read it. It says in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, uh, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Again, this is Paul asking for prayer that he would uh, speak, opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Another verse, Colossians 4, 2 through 4 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which, I, which is how I ought to speak. So we, we should pray for our leaders to be bold, to be clear, and to be consistent with the gospel, with the message of the gospel. And for opportunity for them to proclaim both to outsiders, but especially to proclaim it to us, to, to his flock. We should be devoted to prayer on behalf of our leaders. We are being led by them. Even if you are indifferent with certain views, maybe you have different views from the pastor. Or methods, maybe, of leadership. If that's the case, then bring it up to the Lord. Luke 18.1 says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought, to, ought always to pray and not to lose heart. 
But regardless, we ought to love and support our elders, and prayer is the best way to love them. By the way, every Sunday at 8.50 a.m. through 9.10, it's a commercial, uh, 8.50 a.m., we meet up at the family room for prayer. We pray for the church members. We pray for the ministries at FBC, and we also pray for our leaders. You should consider joining us. We are nothing if we, do, if we do not depend on God, and so we do this with our prayer. And we ought to do this for our elders as well. Conclusion, and I'll close with this. Regardless of our culture's confusion, remember when I spoke about that in the beginning, regardless of the culture's confusion on when to submit or when to resist, we know that God's word still stands, right? And God's word commands us to honor and submit humbly to our elders. We must never forget that leadership in the local church is set up and established by God as a gift to the church for the blessing of the church. Yet in order for leadership to be effective, it needs to be encouraged and supported by the members of the church. We do this by having a healthy understanding of submission, like we spoke about in point one, by honoring the elders and esteeming them highly, showing open-hearted love to them, and humbling ourselves by being teachable. We must always keep in mind the weight of, of responsibility that they have to shepherd, and therefore we should make their work a joy and not a burden. And finally, we must pray for our elders. We can never forget that our leaders are men who, apart from God, are weak and in need of God's strength. A healthy church member is a humble follower in this way. So let us, love, um, let us love and be obedient to God's word by submitting to our elders and trust that God will work, work it all, the submission, the leadership, everything that God has established. Um, he would work it all for his glory and our good. Uh, amen? Amen. amen. Uh, any questions or any comments on submission? Submitting to our elders. We got one in the back. I um, remember in Oak Park that I heard Lady Nair from one of the teachers about how um, the best of men are men at best. Amen. And sometimes we see like just um, an unrealistic expectation of our leadership because they're leaders and expect mm-hmm. perfection. Yeah. And then when you do see some sort of, you know, falling short, it's like, oh my God, did you know? Right. Yeah, that's good. Anyway. Um, uh, it's really kind of off track. It's okay. <laughs> but I had to get it out. Yeah, <laughs> um, do it, I, what always surprises me is um, when Veronica's family comes from Argentina. Um, they come here to America, and what surprises them is how we are so willing, even though we as America, as the church can see how we're going astray, how Americans are so willing to submit themselves to a red light. Mm-hmm. Over there, if nobody's there, they're going across the red light. Wow. They care less. <laughs> um, and so when they come here, it just, it really like reminds me, wow, it is 
good to submit. Um, it does create order and peace. Um, how much more for the body? Yeah. Amen. That's a real good point. Yeah. Amen. You know, to add to that, I, I really think it's the work of the Spirit um, when we see that in the church. Um, and uh, you're right, this is, it's, it's amazing to see that work out. Um, you know, we should never look past the fact that, you know, we do see that in our church. Um, and it, it's a good reminder, you know, to, that Scripture calls us to do that as well. So, but great point. Anybody else? We're good? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for uh, allowing us to hear your word and pull out the principles from scripture of submission and how we ought to submit. Uh, thank you for our elders and our leaders. Uh, they, they serve us by serving you uh, and being faithful in your word, and we're so thankful for that, Father, and help us to serve them in this way by humbly submitting and um, doing what, what your word says for us to do, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen us in this area and that you would encourage us to share this vision that we see clearly in the scriptures from the early church, um, that this would be a reality in our church, um, that we would uh, model Christ's submission um, and that it would be evident the way that we submit to each other and submit to our leaders. Um, so we thank you again and we uh, praise your name for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.